Anyways, we're in 2 Corinthians 11. Again, turn there. Let me kind of catch you up to speed a little bit. Uh, Last week, we talked about spiritual authority. Paul basically broke down to us what it means to have spiritual authority. There are people who have false spiritual authority. They were pretending. uh, They were kind of faking it. Paul actually in chapter 11 and 12 still kind of continues this theme. We talked about this, but it seems like in chapter 10, it's a whole new book. Actually, there's debate. 2 Corinthians 10 almost feels like an introduction to a new book. So the tone has kind of changed a bit. And we looked at what spiritual authority really looks like. And we mentioned and emphasized this thought that if spiritual leaders don't step up, there will always be spiritually toxic people who will. We need men and women who love Jesus to step up, to speak truth, to speak it in love. And we need, we need this generation to kind of say, you know what? No, we're not going to kind of take a back seat and let the enemy come in and infiltrate the church. That was what Paul was really getting at. So now, continuing this thought, we're, we're starting chapter 11, verse 1. Paul is on the same thought. And really, here in this chapter we're going to be looking at today, Paul is basically saying, in light of false apostles— in light of, you know, fake Christians kind of infiltrating the church, he's basically defining, here's what we're all about. Here's what we're all about. The title today is simply, What We're All About. And he's going to basically walk us through, like, we're all about Jesus. We're all about preaching the gospel. Um, we're all about love. And he's going to walk us through these big ideas of what uh, we, as followers of Jesus, are all about. So I want to kind of share that because this is a really kind of ironic text Uh, This text is actually called a discourse of fools. Like people who study 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, basically are like, this is called a discourse of fools because Paul's like, I'm going to be foolish for a second. Actually, verse 1, Paul says it this way. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. And then Paul kind of tongue-in-cheek begins to speak some ironic things, some boastful things. It's almost like he's being sarcastic, and yet he has to kind of stand up for who he is, his apostleship, his calling. It's really interesting to me. I feel like this is one of those texts where you'd be like, oh, sarcasm is used in ministry at times. Like Paul actually says some things like, Paul, I'm kind of surprised by this. Um, the idea is Paul was saying, hey, you've kind of bore, you know, you kind of bore with a lot of people or, or kind of walk with a lot of people who are fools. And I'm going to become foolish for a little bit. You, you, you walk with people, you allowed people who boasted in some things that were not good to boast in. I'm going to boast a little bit in some different things. And so even next week, we're going to see what Paul, Paul boasts in suffering. Paul, the week after that, boasted about this thorn in the flesh. Paul's boasting in weakness so that Christ may be seen in a greater way. And so it's called a discourse of fools because Paul's like, I'm going to be foolish for a little bit. You're going to kind of hear me, and we'll see this even more next week, but you're going to hear me like humble brag a little bit. And so Paul's kind of walking through this text with, with that kind of mindset. I like what Matthew Henry said about this text we're about to study. He says, as much against the grain as it is for a proud man to acknowledge his infirmities, so much is it against the grain for a humble man to speak in his own praise. And it's like, this is a little bit like, this feels uncomfortable a little bit. But it's necessary for Paul to say, hey, let me remind you who, who I am to you. Let me remind you what spiritual authority looks like. But really, let me remind you what we're all about. And so listen, even if you're just new to church or new to this Jesus thing, I think this is a great text to be like, listen, this is what we're all about. There's going to be a lot of false kind of versions of Christianity. There's going to be a lot of pseudo-Christians. There's going to be a lot of counterfeits. And so let me just define what we're all about. And so this is Paul's heart. He wants to define some terms here uh, with the people. So um, why don't we do this? We're going to be looking at verse 1 through 15. I just want to pray, and then we'll, we'll read and work our way through the text. So let's just pray 
And really, my hope and prayer today for us is that we would be a community of people that says yes and amen to what Paul's going to say. Here is what we're all about. We're all about Jesus and the gospel. And I want those to be some just defining lines for us today. All right, so let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your time, this time we get to study it. Jesus, I just ask that they would be, this would be more, more than a Bible study. That God, your spirit would take these words and write it on our heart. That God, we, that I, that we would model this, that we would live this out. That Jesus, um, we would pursue you in a, in a moment where it's very easy to get distracted. There's so many things fighting for our attention. Jesus, we ask that you'd be the center of our, of our thoughts, our lives, our decisions, of our church, of our friendships, of our marriages, that Jesus, you'd be the center of it all. God, I ask that you would just be with everyone in this place. If we've forgotten who you are, that you just remind us of your beauty and of your goodness, that Jesus, you are so good, there is no one like you. We just want to say thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the message of the cross. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Remind us of that this morning. And Jesus, help us just be a community that stands for truth in a moment where it's very easy to compromise. And we ask this in your wonderful and your precious name. Amen. You know, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is with these Ephesians elders or, or pastors. He gathers with them, and Paul probably gives one of the best speeches in all of the Bible. It's, it's really Paul's farewell address to these Ephesians pastors and elders. He just spent three and a half years with them. And Paul's like basically giving like a gladiator, brave heart type of speech, and he's about to peace out. And they're in tears. I mean, it's a really heavy moment. You can like feel it. Paul basically looks at these people he's like done ministry with the last three years, and he says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. I want to finish my race with joy. I want to testify of the gospel, the grace of God. And Paul like gives one of those beautiful speeches I feel like ever given in the New Testament. And then Paul says something really interesting. He says, I want to warn you, here's what's going to happen once I leave. It's Acts chapter 20, verse 29. I'll put the verses up here. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. We need to hear Paul's heart. It's like, I'm leaving, I'm going. The Holy Spirit's testifying, he's telling me, he's telling us that chains and tribulations await me. And I'm not afraid of what's ahead of me. But no, as soon as I leave, there's gonna be false shepherds, there's gonna be wolves that come in and infiltrate, infiltrate the flock and they're gonna try to pull people after themselves. And Paul gives this warning and that's what happened. If you read the book of Ephesians, that's what happened. If you read the book of Revelation, when Jesus is speaking to the church of Ephesus who left their first love, that's what happened. I would say in a very similar way, this is what's happening to the Corinthians. Remember, Paul spent 18 months there, and as soon as he left, savage wolves came in among them. A lot of this book is basically to address some heresy that is creeping into the church. Now, there's debate about which heresy. Some would say this is regarding the Judaizers, people who said you need to believe in Jesus and, you know, fulfill the law and get circumcised. Maybe it's Jesus and, it wasn't just Jesus. And so they missed the point that way. There's a very well-known heresy going around that really spread throughout the first few centuries within the church called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, maybe you've heard of it, but to some degree, this is kind of an elementary understanding of it. Gnosticism basically taught that all material uh, was evil, so that means even our bodies are evil. So in some ways, it's kind of like, just do whatever you want then. 
you know, since your you know, body matters, evil, spirit, good, so it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. You can sleep with whoever you want. You can do whatever you want with your body. I mean, it doesn't really matter anyways because the spirit's what matters. God cares about the spirit. So a lot of people kind of gave themselves over to hedonism, like just living for pleasure, basically. And another way this played out was, therefore, since material is evil, Jesus, they said, is not God in the flesh. He did not come in human form, but was an emanation from God. Now, here's what this does. They didn't deny the importance of Jesus, they dethroned Jesus of who he really was. I want to make this really clear. We live in a moment where people do not deny the importance of Jesus, but they dethrone who he really is. People will acknowledge Jesus was a f- fantastic teacher, a guru, a sage, if you will. Like, they will acknowledge some, some powerful teachings of Jesus, even incorporate that or misuse the Bible or speak it in some political way. Like They'll quote Jesus in some fashion or form. People don't deny the importance of Jesus, but they do dethrone him for who he really is. I think what happens is everyone, we're all prone to this, even within the church, we make like a caricature out of Jesus. We like one specific teaching and we highlight that only. It's like we find one like, you know, feature of Jesus, and we focus on that. I don't know if you've ever been to like a, a carnival or fair or like some theme park and that you've seen like someone draw a caricature of you. I've had a couple of caricatures drawn of me like just one time in, uh, as a, you know, I asked the school one time for a point. I'm like, Can I, I want to see a caricature. Basically, they brought me in and they were mean. Like they're mean. Caricatures are mean, man, right? Like they exaggerate your features. Like your, my forehead's this big. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like my nose is weird. My teeth are crooked. I'm like, my eyebrows are like this. I'm like, what is going on? Like you guys are mean. Like they basically find your insecurity. You're like, now let's just exploit this insecurity. And you're like, oh my gosh. Now, if you saw it, you're like, oh my gosh, it kind of looks like you, right? It's not, it's not me. It's not a photograph image of me, but you're like, I can see some similarities there. We do this with Jesus. We create a caricature out of him. We, we find some similarities there and you go, oh, that sounds like Jesus. That might be like Jesus, but we neglect some things. We hide the things we want. We kind of ignore some things at times. My, my point with this is, again, people, even in the church, we don't maybe um, deny the importance of Jesus. We just dethrone him. I just want you to think about just throughout history what this has looked like. You, you have people, uh, for example, like Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, who acknowledged that he might be divine, but I don't know if he came in a body. Or Charles uh, Taze Russell, the founder of just Jehovah's Witnesses. And they say basically Jesus, he's just an angel. He's Michael the archangel in the flesh. Mormons who basically say Jesus is the half-brother of Lucifer, the firstborn. I mean, you have different really cults and religions, Islam, that says Jesus is a great prophet, but secondary to Muhammad. And he's not God's son. God God does not have a son. They hijack the name Jesus or certain qualities of Jesus, but it's not the biblical Jesus. I think, obviously, there's a biblical revelation of Jesus, and then we have our personal imagination of Jesus. Our hope today is we need to know the biblical revelation of Jesus, not how we imagine him to be. I think we live in a church culture and moment where we want to talk about the love and grace of Jesus, but not the Revelation 19, just Jesus, the wrath of God, Jesus, that God is going to make all things right. We can emphasize and highlight what we want and ignore what we want, and it's we're making a caricature out of Jesus. And it's one of those things that we can't get this wrong. I mean, I know you guys know this, but we cannot get the person of Jesus wrong. That is one thing we can't get wrong. I mean, this, Jesus said this, and John, uh, he put it this way. He says in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, I'm the one all of Scripture talks about and points to, I'm the Son of God who came in the flesh to see, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. Basically, Jesus is saying, you cannot get me wrong. When Jesus looked at the disciples in Matthew 16 and says, who do you say that I am? 
Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he asked them, like, some say you're this, some say you're that. Peter's like, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He goes, rightly so, Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. The point is, how we define Jesus is everything. I mean, it's everything. Who is Jesus? And Paul is basically saying in this chapter, there are false apostles coming in, and they were basically making a caricature out of Jesus. They're twisting the gospel of Jesus, the person of Jesus, maybe lessening the importance of the work of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. They're putting the emphasis back on works, or they're saying, no, no, Jesus, you know, just a good teacher, and we have a greater knowledge than Paul. Paul actually mocks them in this chapter and calls them super apostles. He's basically saying, like, you guys are just making a mockery out of Jesus. And so here's why today we're going to kind of walk through this text, what is what we're all about. Like, what are we all about here? What is the church all about? And so I'm going to kind of share briefly, we'll see the, the four points today and just walk through them. Here's what we're all about. Number one is this, we're all about keeping Jesus central to everything we do. Can we just say amen? Amen. We're all about keeping Jesus central to everything we do, verse one through three. Uh, number two is this, we're all about preaching the authentic gospel of Jesus, Number three, we're all about humility, integrity, and love. And lastly, we're all about right beliefs that result in right practices. Paul is based on this is what we're all about. Again, more, he's more calling out the false prophets. So we'll, we'll see what we're about and we'll see what we're not about as well and what they're about. So why don't I just read verse one through three. First point is this, uh, we're all about keeping Jesus central to everything we do. Let's read verse one. Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. And he's going to get foolish in a little bit. He goes, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, we're all about keeping Jesus central to everything we do. I mean, look at verse two specifically. Paul's like, I have like this divine jealousy for you, like a godly jealousy for you. It's put another way. I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Verse two, I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy. You know, this is an interesting attribute and characteristic of God. I mean, you might know this, but God described himself this way. For he said, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. In Exodus 20, we'll put the verse up here. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now listen, if you're a husband, you get this. Like if you see someone talking to your wife, like in a, a, an unfamiliar place, you're like, well, who is that guy? What do they do? Why are they talking? They have nothing to talk about. They have nothing in common. What are they talking? And you're like, hey, hey, nice to meet you. <laughs> you know, maybe you've like ever been in those moments. You're like, hey, who are you? Why are you talking about? Like you notice like to have like a, a godly jealousy. It's so, like this person is mine. I love them. They're not yours. It's like Song of Solomon. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. You kind of have that like ownership. Like, hey, this person's mine. God's like, hey, you're mine. I have a godly jealousy for you, towards you. You got to understand that God sees us in that way of like, I love you so much. Like, I'm going to take ownership of you. Not okay. I don't want your heart to be led astray by some idol. I know those things won't satisfy you. I know those things won't give you purpose and meaning like you think it might. See, God, I love this, has a godly jealousy for us. You know, this is something that years ago, maybe you're familiar with this, but this is an attribute that I think that has confused some people. Like, I think Oprah got really well known for being very frustrated by this characteristic that God is a jealous God. But put the quote up here from Oprah, because I thought it was really interesting. This might represent some people. Uh, Oprah kind of shares her, her story about this. She says, this great minister was preaching on how great God was and how omniscient and omnipresent, and God is everything. And, and then he says, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And she says, I, I was caught up in the rapture of the moment until he said, jealous, and something struck me. 
I was like 27 or 28, and I'm thinking, God, God is all, God is omnipresent, and God is also jealous. God is jealous of me. And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit. And that is where the search for something more than doctrine started to stir within me. Her frustration came when she's like, God is jealous of me? And she goes, that's when I was in search of something more than doctrine. Now, really quick, by the way, just like a philosophical thought. Um, when she says something more than doctrine, that is a doctrine by which she lives by. I want something more than doctrine. That is a doctrine that controls her life. I want something more than doctrine. Do you believe that? I believe that. That's your doctrine. Okay. I don't want doctrine, though. Um, all right. Anyways. But she's like, I want something more than that. What, what frustrated her? She's like, well, God is jealous of me. The scripture is not that God is jealous of us, obviously. He's jealous for you. He goes, you're mine. I love you. I, I'm not going to be satisfied with you giving yourself to another. How could I? What husband or what wife would be okay with that? I mean, this is something where God speaks into because I'm not jealous of you. I'm jealous for you. Again, the phrase says divine jealousy for you, for you. I love this God is jealous for. I want God, I want God to care. So thankful God cares. I'm so thankful he's not okay with us pursuing things outside of him. I'm so thankful God doesn't want to be second in my life or in your life. Paul's like, I have this divine jealousy for you, just like the jealousy, I have that for you. I want to see this for you. I want to see this in you. I love how Alan Redpath put this text. He said this, God's jealousy, therefore, listen, is a concern for the holiness, integrity, purity of ethics, and Christian standards for his people. Because of this, he will refuse to brook a rival in our affections for him, not because of a selfish greed, which wishes us all for his own possession, but simply because he knows that his great purpose for us of purity and holiness of life depends on our personal surrender and submission to his purpose. He knows that this is for our good. He, he goes, no, I want more for you. You're settling here. God has this divine jealousy. Paul says, I have this jealousy for you. How Paul even words this is just so interesting to me because he says, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. He's like, this jealousy, this heart of mine is like a father who's trying to present you just pure on that wedding day. I want you to, I want you to stand before, I want you to present you and say, God, they're yours. You know, he, wants, he really wants there to be like this, such a beautiful confidence we have when we see Jesus at his coming. That's the heart of John. If you read 1 John chapter 2, John's like, when Jesus comes again, I want everyone to be confident before him at his coming. He goes, I want to present you a pure and just chaste version to Christ. This is really interesting to me because Paul's communicating something about salvation that's worth considering and acknowledging the moment we're in. You know, you got to understand this. Uh, biblically speaking, marriage obviously is like different than our, the way we do marriages, but maybe you've heard this kind of layout before of marriage, but we'll put it up here. There's kind of three stages of marriage slash even salvation. All right. The idea is this betrothal. He says, I want to betroth you. Look at, I betroth you to one husband. Betrothal is the idea that a conversion is taking place, meaning you are Jesus's. If someone was betrothed, you're legally bound in marriage, even though you're not acting and living in the covenant of marriage, you're bound in marriage. You're legally that person's. When someone was betrothed, if you wanted to break that betrothal, you had to get a divorce. You're as good as married. You're just not living together, sleeping together, doing life together, but you're, you're that you're married. The idea is that, listen, when you believed in Jesus Christ, man, you are his. You are God's. Do we see Jesus? Are we with him face to face? No. We're kind of now in that engagement period. This engagement period where it's this present age, it's what we call a lot of times in theology, the already not yet. I love this. It's like the kingdom of God is here, but it's also not here. You know, there's this already not yet thing happening. It's like you're married, you're with Jesus, but you're also not with Jesus. Like you're with him, but you're not with him. 
And it's not a betrothal, it's so true. It's like, man, we're, betrothed. we're married to Christ, we're betrothed to Christ. It's legal, it's binding, absolutely. It's this covenant we have between us and Jesus right now, but we're in this engagement period. And a lot of times for them, the engagement period would like last a year, but then they'd have the wedding ceremony where they would basically have like this marriage feast. And in Revelation 19, the Bible speaks of this marriage feast of the Lamb. And it talks about how this day, one day, we will be united with Jesus. We will have the marriage feast of the Lamb. And this is the idea that the wedding, the wedding speaks of just the second coming of Jesus being with him face to face. What I'm trying to get at is Paul says, I, want, I, betroth, I betroth you, I betroth you, but I'm waiting for that day you're sitting at the altar. I'm waiting for that marriage supper of the Lamb and say, look it, they're yours, God. Basically, he says, my job here as a leader is to kind of present you pure and blameless chase before God. Now, let me just say a couple things really quick on this. These were the Corinthians. I mean, historically speaking, the Corinthians, they were so sexually kind of explicit in their lifestyle, there was a term invented because of them called Corinthianizers. Corinthianizers just you sleep with anyone and anything. Like, you're just constantly sexually active. You're a Corinthianizer. I mean, it's like a, a shameful term to be used in any person, any like, period. They're Corinthianizers. Paul says this, basically. Paul's like, I want to present you pure and blameless. Meaning, one, it doesn't matter what your past is. You can be pure and blameless before him. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your past. I don't care if you're the Corinthianizers. That's not who you are. I can, there's this idea that you and I positionally are in Christ. Yes. Like, your position is in Christ. You are a new creation, absolutely. Like, it's so beautiful. That's my position. Practically, I'm still a sinner, though. See, salvation deals with your position, justified. You are in Christ. You're justified. You're forgiven. But it also deals with sanctification, where God is trying to make me like my position. Practically, I'm still a sinner, but God is making me more and more like the person of Jesus. And Paul goes, I want to work on that. So one, I want to say this. Um, it doesn't matter what your past is. You can still be presented to Christ pure and blameless and chaste. You can still be presented to him in that beautiful, clean, wear that white gown on your wedding day. You can still stand before him in that way. What a beautiful thing. It doesn't matter who you are or your past is. The other side of this is, and I think, again, dads would get this. Like, I want to fight. I'm like, I thought of my daughter. Oh my gosh, she's two years old and the cutest thing on planet Earth. The thought of her getting married, I literally feel like my whole life, I'm just going to be like walking with her, like punching things out of the way. And like, an idea comes, bad idea. Like a man comes, get out of here. Like, I don't know. My thought is just like, I love her. She's the cutest thing ever. Like literally the cutest thing ever. And like, my job is like, I want to present her on that wedding day. Just pure for her husband set apart. If she sins along the way though, the beautiful thing about salvation and grace is God can continually work on her and purify her. The beautiful thing is that God's like, oh, you messed up once, now you're no longer pure. Paul's like, my job here, my role here is I want to present you pure before Christ. This really, you could say, is the job of a shepherd, pastor, leader, spiritual authority. Is like, hey, you understand here, I'm not here to kind of fulfill your happiness. I'm here to make you more holy and more like Christ. And it's just such a different perspective. It's almost like as a parent, you get this. I don't really care if you're super happy. I want you to be holy. Like, I want you to be set apart for God. At times, you might be happy, beautiful, awesome, that's a bonus. But you know what? We're not living for hedonism of like what can make you happy in this moment at this time. We're playing the long game here. We're not playing the short game. And really, he goes, this is Paul's heart and perspective in this. You know, again, there's a temptation for leaders maybe to make about themselves. He goes, I want to present you pure. He says, to Christ. To Christ. It's not about the shepherd. It's about making sure on that day you're pure to Christ. I love what John Calvin said about this. He says, beware of, of pastors pursuing their own interests rather than Christ and of intruding themselves in his place, lest while they pretend to be the bridegroom's friends, they're in fact adulterers who seduce the bride's love to themselves. 
Ultimately, the hope of anyone in any sort of spiritual authority is, I want to point you more to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus. Present you pure to Christ. Ultimately, our goal is for you to love Jesus, walk with Jesus. You know Jesus. Don't know Jesus through me or through someone else or a friend. You know Jesus. You love Jesus. Our goal is to like fight for you and Jesus and your walk with Jesus. Get it? Our job is not to fall in love with some celebrity status pastor, but to fall in love with Jesus. Church, do we get this? This is the hope. So we want you to be pure and set apart to Christ. Like that is what we're aiming for here. And Paul kind of summarizes this very well in verse three. When, like, when he says we're all about Jesus here and it's just, we want to keep it simple. Look at verse three, read it with me. Verse three says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his, craft, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We talked about this a couple weeks ago because Paul's addressing the thought life, which we spoke on a couple weeks ago. But I think this translation truly is better than New King James. Here's how it words it, just so you can see it this way. He says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Stay with me. Think about how, so simple, how simple it was in the garden. God's like, eat anything you want, just not that tree. So simple. They're like, how can you complicate that? How can you miss that? Hey, enjoy everything and anything. Enjoy me, enjoy the garden, enjoy each other. Just don't eat that tree. So simple. We screwed that up. It's like, did God really say? Well, I don't know. Maybe he didn't say. Like, maybe I will be like God. We missed the simplicity of the garden. And, and really what Paul's saying is we also can miss the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. He goes, I fear lest somehow, just as, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so too some of you will be deceived by the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. It's so simple. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. I don't know. Sounds too good to be true. All those, who call upon the, all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't know. Like it sounds almost too simple. Don't be, de be deceived by the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. This is so important. You know, I was trying to find a way to illustrate this, so stay with me. We'll try to, this, because this, so, this was so interesting to me. In high school, I was absolutely terrible, as you can imagine, at chemistry. All right? Awful. Hated it. That was like the class like you had to take. I got to do it. It's my junior year. I mean, this is 17 years ago, so forgive me if this analogy doesn't work or if I don't explain it correctly. We're going to put a little graph up. I remember there's one thing in chemistry I was kind of good at. One thing. Uh, I think it was called the Lewis dot structure. And if you want to correct me later, feel free to. But I'm going to do my best. I had to call somebody. Hey, help me remind me of this. All right. Um, I thought this was really funny to me. In high school, terrible. I mean, I was the worst one. I think I graduated. Like, I had a 69.8. And the teacher's like, fine. I'll give you a 70. I'm like, yes. Right? It's one of those things. Like, I had to pass this class. Awful. Uh, one, one part of the whole class I was good at is based this idea, like, you see the middle here on, your, on the chart, the molecular fo formula. So, like, let's say, just say, simply put, like, H2O. Basically, you'd have to, like, just draw out H2O, right? Maybe some of you remember this. I don't know if you do. But I remember, like, this is easy. I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, hydrogen, oxygen, put a little dash there, like, easy. You know, so, like, sometimes I put these little dots for, like, the electrons. I forget some of that, but whatever. But you'd have to, like, draw it out uh, for methane. You're like, oh, CH4. C in the middle, four H's. That's easy, right? Pretty simple enough. I remember, like, this was the one, like, I don't even, this wasn't even a big thing. But I remember this was, like, the one thing I, I think I got an A plus on in the class. Like, so, so easy, right? And I remember the teacher one day in class, he's like, this is so funny. This is probably the easiest part of chemistry. The, the smartest kid, like, in our grade, his name was Doug Fisher. I'm like, genius kid. Like, he was a salutator, like, super smart kid. He's like, this is funny. He's like, the one person that can't do this is Doug Fisher. He's like, he, his brain cannot get it. He, I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, Graves, even you can get this. I'm like, what the heck, man? 
He's like, and he's like messing with me, man. My teacher was trying me. He's like, he's like, hey, maybe Josiah, maybe you should tutor him, <laughs> right? Like messing with the, the class. I'm like, what the heck? Anyways, but he's right. It's so funny. I remember talking to Doug. I'm like, Doug, how do you not get this? Like, I get this. Like, I'm barely passing. Like, you just draw it out. He's like, it does not make sense to me. I'm like, it is so simple, <laughs> right? Now, I don't know why but this just came to my mind as I just say this. It's so weird that the gospel of Jesus, it is so simple. And yet, it's also simply profound. I mean, it's so simple, and yet it's very deep. It's very rich. But it's crazy that we can sometimes miss it. He goes, don't be deceived by the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. You know, I do want to say that any and every issue we see is not because people maybe the gospel is too simple. They haven't just pressed into the beauty and richness and vastness of the gospel, but it's so simple at the same time. I'm so thankful truly children can understand this. Hey, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. If you receive Jesus, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. I mean, God just makes it so simple. Receive him. Believe on him. It's so simple. And, and Paul goes, my concern for some of you is this simplicity in Christ that Satan's going to deceive you just like he deceived, deceived Eve in the garden. It was so simple. Don't eat. You eat, you're going to die. How do we screw that up? Believe on Jesus, you'll be saved. Well, believe on Jesus and do these things. And we screw it up. We can miss the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. I love this because it's truly profoundly simple and yet simply profound. The gospel is so beautiful, so simple, and yet the more I get into it, the more I feel like it's endless and vast and I can't explore it enough. There's just something about that. Paul is saying, hey, here's what we're about. We're all about Jesus being the center. I don't want you to be deceived by the simplicity that is in Christ. I want to be purely devoted to Christ, set apart for Christ that is coming. See, number one, here's what we're all about. We're all about keeping Jesus central in everything we do. Amen? Number two, very similar but different, Paul says, we're all about preaching the authentic gospel of Jesus. We're all about preaching the real deal, the real true gospel of Jesus. Look at verse four. Let's read verse four. Paul says, listen, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Listen, we are all about preaching the authentic gospel of Jesus. This is really interesting to me. Maybe you kind of missed it in verse 4. They missed three things. The gospel, spirit, Jesus. Like, they missed it. I like how the NLT puts this just so you can kind of see it differently. He says, you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you. Even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach or a different kind of spirit than the one you received or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. You happily put up with this. We're preaching to you Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected and glorified. Where you receive the spirit and some, for some reason you're receiving this different spirit. You, for some reason you're accepting this different gospel. He's like, you've missed it. How have you missed it in this way? You know, because listen, there really is, I believe, especially today, and even then, obviously, and they're very hedonistic pagan culture. In our culture, it's very easy to want to be tempted to kind of just water down the gospel of Jesus. We want to preach easy believism, where it's basically just, okay, just believe this and you're done. And it's like, you know what? Yes, true belief in Jesus, because I want to go back to my first point. True belief in Jesus will result in a life change. It just does. I mean, Titus 3.5 talks about this. Titus 2, 14 through 16 talks about this. 
The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live righteous and godly and sober in this present age. Meaning, as you believe on Jesus, as you trust in Jesus, as you look to Jesus, watch the Holy Spirit just transform you from one image, from one glory to another glory, to greater glory. Just this is what happens. There's life change that happens. But it's easy. We want to preach the gospel in a way that we can water down, where you can kind of say, hey, listen, you know, just if you want to follow Jesus, follow Jesus. I mean, the gospel really is so, it's so provoking to me. Anyone can come to Jesus and follow him. But he goes, hey, if you're going to follow me, count the cost. Deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. Anyone can follow Jesus. It's incredibly inclusive. Come on in. All those who are weary and heavy laden, come on. You're welcome. Anyone can follow Jesus. But discipleship, a life of following Jesus, will cost you everything. There's just, there's just that mindset constantly throughout scriptures. You want to follow Jesus? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. You're going to die to yourself. You can't live for you. You're living for Jesus in this moment in time. The point is, Paul's saying, listen, um, some people are preaching another gospel to you, and you're just readily receiving it. What's up with that? You're not challenging it. You're not saying, hey, this doesn't sound like the gospel that we've heard. Again, in the last 2,000 years since Jesus, we've heard a lot of different versions of Jesus, and some have crept into the church. Some have crept into our lifestyle. Some progressive views of Jesus. Some different views of Jesus. We go, wait a second, is this the Jesus we know biblically? We've accepted a Jesus that is allowed to love everyone but challenge no one. It's not okay. Jesus loves everyone and challenges everyone. No one's off limits to Jesus. I, I love this about Jesus. Some of you right now in your theology, you're not letting Jesus challenge some progressive worldviews. You're saying, Jesus, you can have any topic, but just not that topic of sexuality. You can have any topic, but just not that topic of money or power. You can have any topic, but just not that topic. Some of you are not letting Jesus challenge you in maybe some more religious conservative views. Some of you might struggle with the forgiveness of Jesus, with a woman caught in adultery. Some of you are like really struggle with the idea of befriending what we might call enemies, right? Or what you might befriend someone who's just out there, someone who has a different lifestyle than you. See, I think we all like to make Jesus in our own image. Jesus was so good at just loving the sinner and sitting with the tax collector, sitting with the prostitutes, letting them wash his feet, and yet also at the same time saying, listen, go and sin no more, and challenging them and confronting them. And there's something so beautiful about Jesus that says, all are welcome and all are also going to be challenged. All are welcome, but I'm also going to, you know, call you to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. It's so beautiful, it's so simple, and yet it's simply profound. And he goes, you know, some of you are readily accepting a different form of the gospel. What's up with that? You know, we really do live in a just bizarre moment. We live in this podcast generation, right? I mean, there's thousands of good teachings and teachers at any point in time. We're, there's no lack of information in the time we live in. I mean, just so much good information out there. But we live in this weird, trendy moment where not only is it okay, but it's like encouraged to deconstruct your faith, your old view. And let me just point out, I want to talk through this really quick. I think that there's two modes to like deconstructing something about your beliefs. I think, first of all, and stay with me, there's the Genesis 3 mode of deconstructing your faith. And it's a serpent saying, did God really say? It's questioning, not truly seeking truth, but seeking it for your advantage or your benefit. Then there's, I think there's another form of deconstruction that is, pretty, that is healthy, that Jesus does. Jesus says, you've heard it say of old, but I say to you. Your, your, your Christian subculture says this, maybe you grew up believing this, but what does the scripture say? And maybe some of us need to be deconstructed in some of those beliefs maybe we grew up with or we were told. And you're like, but what does Jesus really say here? How do I kind of sift through the opinions of maybe a speaker, interpreter, pastor? How do I sift through that and go, Jesus, what are you saying here? I think Jesus does this a lot. You've heard it say of old, but I say to you. He's not changing the Old Testament. He's saying you've misunderstood the interpretation of it. He's not trying to abolish it. He's trying to redeem it. He's trying to say you've missed the point of this. All of this points to me. 
But I think when it comes to like deconstructing our faith, there's almost a serpent mentality. We're like, did God really say? We're just asking this question to be cynical. It's almost like a very in thing. There's a lot of money to be made right now for people to walk away from the faith, leave their faith, and make a podcast about it. There's a lot of money to be made for people to write a book about why they left Jesus. And people are capitalizing on that moment. You know, I want to say there's, I think there's a few reasons why people deconstruct their faith. And I want to say as Christians, there's this balance we want to have of, of like, I'm going to have compassion and empathy, but I'm also going to walk through this with you, and I'm not going to let you question just for some empty questions. Like, we're going to try to reason through this together. Like, we're not just going to ask questions with really no point in the end. Like, we're going to try to get to the bottom line. Is Jesus real? Did he die and rise again? We're going to try to sift through and get straight to the point. Did this person of Jesus rise again? That is the main question of questions. But here's, I think, five reasons why people deconstruct their faith briefly. I think many times you see this so often people deconstruct their faith because of church hurt. Someone failed them. The pastor hurt them. This person said this. This is a small group. They didn't welcome them. They didn't make them feel loved on. Maybe this isn't even real. They say they talk about love, but there's no love there, and they start to deconstruct because of church hurt. The solution to that so often is letting people grieve, giving them room to grieve. Not say, hey, you shouldn't be sad about that. It's like, no, I grieve that. I'm sorry. It's painful. I'll walk through this with you. Sometimes you need to let people grieve. I think in a similar way, there's personal pain. You see a lot of times people go, I lost my mom. I lost a family member. Uh, why would God do this? This person was diagnosed with cancer. I lost my child. And they begin to deconstruct their faith through just really personal pain. They're kind of walking through some painful moment that they don't understand maybe the, the wonderful theology of suffering that we have, that God suffers with us, that God suffers alongside of, side us, that God is not immune to suffering. We have the only worldview on earth where it says, we say God walked among us and suffered with us. He knows it's like to lose loved ones. He knows it's like to be rejected and spat on, abused and crucified ultimately by the people he cared most about. Like we have a God who suffers with us and yet we forget that, I think in these personal painful moments. And again, there's time just to walk through this with them and just give them some room to grieve to walk through the healing process with them. I think also what we do see a lot of times is possibly there's a deconstruction of faith because there's just poor teaching, even poor learning. Maybe where the gospel's not being preached, self-help thoughts or topics are being preached. Maybe just incom- the, like it's an incomplete version of the gospel. There's no depth there. There's no acknowledgement of cultural issues that are happening and people begin to kind of walk through this. Why do we never talk about this? Why do we never go over this? Why is this never addressed? And I think sometimes it can be just maybe a poor or incomplete teaching, even learning though, not willing to explore, not, not willing to listen, not, not being open to maybe Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe I should consider this more deeply. I think people can deconstruct because of just poor teaching. I think, fourthly, we also, a lot of times, deconstruct our faith, our worldview, just because it justifies whatever lifestyle we want to give ourselves to. I mean, it's like, well, I want to live this way, and if God's against this, then I'm against God. We're not willing to ask the question, I think, again, the most important question we have to answer, did Jesus rise again? If he rose again, that changes everything. If he rose again, it doesn't matter what I think about politics, what I think about sexuality, what I think about any topics, no matter what you think about it, if Jesus rose again, he is who he says he is, let's study what he has to say about these topics. Those topics are way secondary. I think sometimes we can address those things. Those are very important, but it's secondary. Is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Did he die on a cross for people's sins and rise again from the grave? If he did, everything is in subject to him. Everything comes under him. My worldview comes under him. And so often I go, I, God, would do it this way, and, but you say it this way. First of all, I'm glad I'm not God. You're probably right here, even though I'm struggling with this idea or thought. And this happens so often, but I think it's a lot of times people deconstruct just to justify whatever lifestyle they want to live. I don't want there to be a God that can challenge me. I don't want to be the God that would disagree with me, because I'm, I'm God. I love me. I love my thoughts. I love my ideas on every topic. God must agree with me, or there is no God. It's a very dangerous place to get to. I think, lastly, uh, just because of street cred right now, <laughs> I think it's very in. It's like, oh, 
you're deconstructing your faith? Awesome, man. Join my little small group of deconstructing your faith. Let's deconstruct everything. I, I think we've got to be very aware of these things. I think critical theory, if we even just get to some of these thoughts or ideas and understand the people who kind of came up with a lot of this philosophy, this was not to edify the church. This was not to grow the church. We have to even understand the motives behind some of these philosophies. It was to tear down Jesus, who he is. And so, just some of these things we need to be aware of, even the history of it and how it's been used to play out in different cultures and times and moments. My point of this is we have to be committed to preaching the authentic gospel of Jesus. It doesn't mean we shy away from the gospel when people begin to be hurt by the church. I think we press more into the gospel, that when the disciples were walking away from Jesus after his resurrection in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, the disciples are walking away. Some said he rose again, whatever, and Jesus is walking with them. They don't even know Jesus is with them, but he's walking away with them in their hurt. He's walking away with them in their pain, and I'm so thankful to know that Jesus walks with us when sometimes we walk away with, from him. That Jesus is like, let me walk with you as you walk away from me. Let me walk with you through this pain and hurt. That's why we do some things like Alpha. We're saying, hey, we're willing to walk with you. If you've been hurt by the church, you've been hurt by Christians, or maybe the gospel, or you've just been hurt in life, um, we're willing to walk through that with you. We're going to pursue, we're going to leave the 99 and go after the one. I see Jesus model that for us in Luke 24 when the disciples were not really believing in the resurrection at that point in time. He's like, I'm willing to walk with you away from me to Emmaus. It's when he sat down and ate a meal with them, had communion with them, their eyes were opened. My thing is that Jesus is so good to walk through us with the pain. I don't think we shy away from the gospel in those points. I think we press more into the gospel at those points. I, I think the, the message of the cross, it, it, it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to us who believe. I, I think it is foolishness to those who are perishing. Absolutely. But when you realize, oh my gosh, the, there's a power in the cross, we must preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. We must not shy away from that. The fact that on the cross, my sins have been dealt with and paid for, sin, hell, death, that all that was taken upon Jesus, and yet he gave me his righteousness. The veil of the temple was torn, and God says, come on in, you have access to me. We must press more into the teaching of the cross and press more into the gospel than shy away from it. Paul is basically saying that, hey, listen, we're all about preaching the authentic gospel of Jesus. What are you doing? Accepting other versions of this. What are you doing accepting just variations of this? He goes, no, we're all about preaching the gospel. Let us be a church that's all about this. Amen? Number seven is this. We're all about, number seven in verse seven, or number three in verse seven, we're all about humility, integrity, and love. Just stay with me as you read these four verses. Listen to how Paul puts this. Verse seven. Paul writes, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you may be exalted? Because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. What is going on here? All right, this is so interesting to me. It was like culturally acceptable and understandable that if someone comes in and preaches the gospel, we're going to like, or teaches any philosophy, we pay them. It's almost like a Greco-Roman thing of someone comes and teaches, it's dishonorable to not accept the money. One historian about this Greco-Roman period says, uh, the expectation was that the affluent gave money to traveling philosophers and that this was received without question. That's like the expectation, right? They're offended. Paul, you would not accept money from us, but you did from these other churches, from other churches in Macedonia, but not from us. 
I kind of view it like maybe you ever, you know, live in two families or you're married and you have to go to like this house for Thanksgiving and this house for Thanksgiving. They're like, well, why aren't you eating our meal? And you're like, I'm full. You're like, but well, you need to eat mine. You're like, I'm offended that you won't eat mine. It's almost like we see this like, you know, maybe moms or grandparents. It's like, you better eat this. You better like it. Right? And you're just like, I can't do it. And like, I'm offended if you don't eat. All right. They're like, we're offended, Paul, if you don't take our money. <laughs> this is not really an issue you see too much today. But they're kind of going, we're offended by that. How come you're willing to take their money but not ours? Do you love them more? And understand this, Paul's heart in this process, some of these churches are really well established. Paul's like, I don't want to come across to you as just some money-hungry guy. That's not my heart in this. If this church is established, they can meet my needs. They've matured, they've grown in the faith. Okay, you know, remember the first church to be planted in, in Europe was in Philippi. They've been established a little bit longer. He's like, hey, you know what? They're more established. They can meet my needs. I don't want anything from you. Paul, if you remember in the book of Acts, made tents with his hands with Priscilla and Aquila. Paul had a job. But there's also debate going on in different times. Paul's saying, I have a right. I have a right to take from you. You actually should give to that, but I'm not going to do that. Paul, and just know the history of this. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul actually said it this way to them, which is pretty strong. He says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great matter if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? In the same section, Paul put it this way. You don't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Like, while it's plowing the fields, you don't muzzle it. While it's working for you, you let it eat, you let it be fed. He goes, hey, hey, if we've invested in you in spiritual things, should we not benefit in material things? But even then, Paul goes, but I'm not doing this. But I'm not taking it from you. Paul's like, we have a right, but I'm, I'm letting go of that right. Because I don't want this to be a stumbling block for some of you. There's such integrity there. Paul mentions in verse 7 his humility which only Paul can mention is humility. We can't, okay, just so you know. But Paul's allowed to mention humility. Don't ever say I'm humble. Paul can do that, not us. He, he meant, there's this humility there. There's this integrity there. He goes, I'm not going to do this. I don't want you to miss the point. What I'm very thankful for is when you see people say, we will go the extra mile. We're not in this for, for the money. We're not in this for some glory here. He actually boasts in his sufferings from here on out. My point is it's a beautiful thing when you say, I'm willing to work with my hands. I'm willing to serve in any capacity I need to do. It's more about your salvation, your soul than anything else. I didn't want that to get in the way. And now, but now they're offended though because he, they didn't accept, Paul didn't accept the money, so they're offended at that. And they go, Paul, do you even love us? Like, do you even love us? I love what verse 11 says. Paul put it so funny. He's like, why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Gosh, if you're a parent, you really do get this. I just think it's so funny, right? It's like I say no to my son's fourth donut. He's like, you don't love me. I'm like, I don't love you. I just said no to a fourth donut. That's it. Like, it's so funny what people claim, right? Like, we don't love them. Like, you don't love me. And it's like, why? Why? Like, you know I love you. God's like, you, Paul's like, you know I love you. You know when it comes to following just Jesus, there's going to be a lot of pain. There's going to be a lot of disagreements. We're not going to always see eye to eye, but hopefully there's humility, integrity, and love throughout the process. You know, as we kind of walk through the next few years, I'm, I'm curious what 2024 will look like. I'm curious what 2028 will look like. I'm curious all the tension that, and all the division that enemies going to want to do within the church, but know we're going to try to do our best in walk in humility, integrity, and love. That when we disagree, don't see eye to eye. Paul, they didn't see eye to eye on this. Take our money. He's like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> You're going to walk in integrity, humility, and love. He's like, you know how much I love you. Listen, this is the way of Jesus. When there's disagreement, there's pain, we're going to fight for integrity, humility, and love. That's what Paul did. Number four is this. This is the last point. When we see what we're all about, what are we all about? Paul says, we're all about the right beliefs that result in right practices. Why? Because there were those who did not. Look at verse 12. This is so fascinating to me. Paul says, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission... They work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false prophets, or false apostles, deceitful workmen, 
disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Stay with me really quick. Paul says we have right beliefs and right practices. On the other hand, these guys, their end will correspond to their deeds. Meaning, because they have the wrong beliefs about Jesus, we see that in their lifestyle. Hey, we have the right beliefs about Jesus. You're going to see this in our lifestyle. But there's a bigger thing at play here that I want to point out. Paul's obviously addressing the, the deception that was happening in the church. Like, he uses the word disguising three times. Look at this, just two of the times. Paul says uh, in verse 13, that they're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. There's deception oftentimes, obviously, in the church we just have to be aware of. We have to be aware of the enemy's plans. I think one of the most insightful things the enemy has ever done was not just fight against the church, but join the church. I think you see this in the book of Revelation. You see persecution and martyrdom. You see pain that way. But you also saw the church kind of get in bed with the world. And you also saw like deception in that way. Where you're going, wait a second, you're beginning to look just like the world, or you're beginning, whatever the world believes, why does the church believe exactly that? Doesn't, shouldn't we challenge every world? Like, shouldn't everything be challenged? Why are we kind of just agreeing to this or giving ourselves over to this? I love how Charles Hodge, one author, put it. Uh, he says, Satan doesn't come to us as Satan, neither does sin present itself to us as sin. We have to understand there's a level of deception that's going to happen in the church. We have to understand that the enemy will try to come, like we talked about with the mind a couple weeks ago, with certain philosophies, and we might we need to pull down those strongholds. You need to use the Word of God. We need to use discernment. We need to hold every thought, every worldview up to Scripture. I mean, listen, this is a call for everyone. I want you guys to be Bereans. I want you guys to study the Word. I, if I say something, you're like, I don't know. Study the Word. Give yourself over to it. Like, apply yourself over to it. Like, totally give yourself over to the study of God's Word. Like, does God really say this? Is this his interpretation? What, is, what does the Bible really say here? Do the hard work of hermeneutics and, and studying and interpreting the text. Please, absolutely do that. Paul is saying, listen, people are being deceived to believe these guys' lies. And not only that, and here's the bigger point. The bigger point was, you know why it's so easy for them to disguise themselves? Because Satan so often easily disguises himself. Look how he says it again one more time, this verse. He says, even Satan, verse 14, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. This is something we must hear, we must know. I do think sometimes we have a cartoon image of Satan. You know, it's one of those things, like, let's talk about spiritual warfare, let's talk about the enemy for a second. It's, it's one of those things I think a lot of times, again, we can either neglect or over-talk about, and we just have to be aware of that. But we have to realize that Satan is not like how we've like, seen growing up in the cartoons. Obviously, we know this. He's not like in some red jumpsuit with a pitchfork. We know he's subtle. You know, I love in Genesis 3 what describes the ser serpent. He was like more beautiful than the rest. Just good and pleasant to the eye. Like he, he himself. The idea is like there's a cunningness, there's a craftiness there. Paul is saying you've got to understand a lot of philosophies, a lot of worldviews, a lot of beliefs appear to be light. But again, Satan, because he disguises himself as angel light. A lot of worldviews right now seem to be fighting for different things, which might be good and necessary, but it's maybe fueled by hate or it's a way to maybe even infiltrate and saying, hey, you know, let's kind of jump on this bandwagon thought or what's going on here. But you go, is that the heart of Jesus being seen? Is love, is sacrifice, is just, or is personal gain happening? Like, what is going on here? We have to be, I think, very aware of what's going on. Uh, one author, 
John Stott says this, we need to rid our minds of the medieval caricature of Satan. Dispensing with the horns, the hooves, and the tail, we are left with the biblical portrait of a spiritual being, highly intelligent, immensely powerful, and utterly unscrupulous. He goes, we've got to get rid of this idea of how we view him. He's intelligent. He's insightful. He knows what thread to pull on. He knows what thought to throw into the church to, divide, to try to divide the church. He knows what he needs to, to focus on or emphasize on. Listen, there's, there's a point where sometimes things might seem like light. They might seem like good. They might seem like a good even worldview. But we have to be aware. Is, is this like a Trojan horse thing happening here? Is this the enemy trying to come in the church in this way? We have to be just aware of that moment. I think that's what Paul is just emphasizing over and over again. Jesus, preaching the gospel of Jesus. Like, it, does take, it takes a really aware and keen eye to discern between true light and how he ministers or comes across as an angel of light. It takes a discerning eye to see the difference between the two, and we've got to give ourselves over to that. I do think that, again, whether it's in universities, even Christian universities, even seminaries, I think Satan has done a really good job of not just trying to fight against the church, but join the church. And certain worldviews that we take as Christians, how can we blend the way of Jesus with secularism or humanism or materialism or whatever it might be? We try to blend basically what scriptures say, but also our context and our culture and our views on, you name the topic. It can be on money. It could be on the left versus the right. It could be on social justice work. And we try to blend, how does it, and here's what we're trying to get to. How do we step back from all of that and say, Jesus, you obviously care about justice. How do we fight for justice in a way that you'd want us to fight for? Like, how do you, how do you speak into this? What does your word say about this? What's biblical justice look like versus social justice? How do we be aware of the two? How, how do we acknowledge the beauty that even one might have or some truths that one might have? But how do we really approach this in a biblical manner, in a holistic manner, or in a manner that would honor you in the process? There's certain topics we're going to have to just constantly go, there's some good things here. There's some really good things here. And it appears as light, but we have to be aware of the subtleties that come in. It's like the, the, the bait and hook kind of a thing. All right, there's something there. There's something for us to chew on. But is there something below the surface I need to be aware of? I would just say we pray and seek discernment in that process. We don't completely condemn right away, but we pray and discern, and we go, okay, Lord, but where, where's the redemption in this? But how do we now press into it more? How do we now approach it the way you want us to approach it? Paul is basically just be aware Satan himself can manifest himself as an angel of light. Joseph Smith, who has this revelation from God that, you know, that Jesus came to America, he saw an angel of light, right? Anyone who's had this vision from God, they see angels of light. We have to be aware. Paul's like, if I come to you or an angel comes to you and preaches another gospel, count that person anathema. Count that person a curse from God. If me or an angel comes to you, I love that Paul warns them of angels. Like, what the heck is that? If an angel comes to you but preaches another gospel, count that person a curse from God. My thing is we have to fight for the authenticity of Jesus and scriptures and who he is and just hold everything, have a discerning heart and eye, not quick to condemn, not quick to say you're wrong here and this is why you're wrong, but quick for us to say, hey, maybe there's something redeemable here, but maybe it's just incomplete. Maybe Jesus offers a better or more holistic way to this topic or this issue. Amen? Here's the thing. We know how Satan's end ends. We know what happens. We know what happens to him. We see in Revelation 20 how he's cast into the lake of fire forever and ever, it says. We see his end. We know his end. And here's the point. Satan's kind of that guy that's getting pushed into a pool, and he's trying to take everyone he can with him. Like, oh my gosh, I'm falling in. All right, he has this little window. We know how he ends. We know how his story ends. And he's going, how can I take as many people as I can with me? Be aware. He can manifest himself as an angel of light. That's something we just want to be aware of. And you're like, just where are you going with this? Just the last thing. Their deeds... Their deeds do not line up, or not really with their beliefs, because their beliefs are wrong. So therefore, their deeds are wrong. My thing is, we want to have the right beliefs, and that leads to the right practices. 
we don't want to just believe the right things. We want to live the right things. We don't want to just live the right things. We also want to believe the right things. Both. They go both go hand in hand. Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, it's like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Hear my word, do it. Right beliefs, right behavior. Right beliefs, right practices. This goes hand in hand with our faith. Listen, I just want to end really quick with just us giving some time to say, Lord, let us be a community that is all about the gospel of Jesus. Let us be a community that makes Jesus central to everything we do. We don't want to be deceived by the simplicity that is in Christ. Jesus, we want to be a community that when we disagree or don't see eye to eye, we will conduct ourselves with humility, integrity, love. That Jesus, when we maybe disagree, we're going to fight for those things. And so what we just do is, why don't you guys bow your head, close your eyes, just give room for the Lord to work. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up here, but I just want to give you guys time and some space. Maybe there's something in your life you're kind of, you're believing or giving yourself over to, or Jesus is secondary, or he's not central. Just kind of give you some time to surrender that over to him. Just to pray and take a second. We don't want just to be where we sing and we teach. We want you to have a, just a moment with God. Why don't you just say, Jesus, I want you to be central to everything I do. I want you to be central to everything we do. We're going to fight for that. We're going to be about that. Just give Jesus that place again in your life, that supreme place, that preeminent place in your life. Take a second and just invite the Lord to do that.